The gospel in the hearts of Christians creates a concern and a compassion for the poor that is unique, that is different from anything else in the world. That there is a mercy that comes directly from God to his people in the gospel that plays itself out in the world that is totally different from any other social justice cause or concern or compassion that we might see in the world. There's more on this different way to see social causes on Radical with David Platt. I'm Aaron Paulus. Today we're taking a detailed look at our motivation and methods for reaching out with the gospel of Christ with a message called Empowering the Poor. Reaching the lost is a common theme with David, and he has years of experience being committed to the task of engaging non-believers around the world. This was the case when he was pastoring in Birmingham at the church at Brook Hills and now as the president of the International Mission Board. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've heard that Friday is the last day this broadcast will be on the air. At the close of this program, David will join us to tell us more about the change in his ministry focus. But before we do, let's study the details of a familiar story told by Jesus in Luke's Gospel. You'll want to turn to Luke chapter 10, where we'll hear about a good Samaritan. So with your Bible in hand, let's see how the words of Jesus will challenge us to evaluate our compassion for the poor and our commitment to spread the gospel. And as we do, we pray that the Holy Spirit will work in all of our hearts so we can become ones who truly love our neighbors. So let's get started together now on Radical with David Platt. I want us to see and think about how the beauty of the gospel is attached to care for the poor. And I want to lean particularly on another reformer, John Calvin, who was born in 1509. And Calvin was known really more than anything for his exposition of scripture. He preached the word, he preached through the word, line by line, word by word, chapter by chapter, book by book. If you were in the church that John Calvin was preaching in, pastoring, you would have spent about five years in the book of Acts, well over 200 sermons in Acts, and then you would have moved on to 46 sermons in First and Second Thessalonians, 186 sermons in First and Second Corinthians. These are consecutive, 186, 159 sermons through Job. Can you imagine being in Job for three years? 353 sermons through Isaiah, like you'd spend half your life in Isaiah. But this was not just an academic exercise for Calvin. Calvin, one of his great contributions to Christianity was showing how the word plays out in practice, and particularly in public life. He was living in a day where the church was filled with corruption, all kinds of sales of indulgences, just drowning in luxuries and Calvin spoke in particular about the church's use of resources for the sake of the poor. When he was talking about deacons in his Institutes of Christian Religion, I want you to hear what he said about these leaders in the church compared to what they were in the early church and how the church was using leaders in that day. And I want you to hear how he connects the gospel with care for the poor. Calvin wrote, The Romanists today charge deacons only with ministering at the altar, reading or chanting the gospel, and goodness knows what other trifles. There's nothing of alms, nothing of the care for the poor, nothing of that whole function which they once performed. 
The deacon, who was the steward of the poor, received what was given in order to distribute it. Today the poor get nothing more of those alms than if they were cast into the sea. Calvin said what the church has done with deacons, they have provided that not one penny of all the church's goods should come to the poor, to whom at least one half belonged. Did you catch that? Calvin was saying that half of the church's resources belong to the poor. That was a stinging indictment in the church in his day, and I would say is a stinging indictment of the church in our day. What I want us, us to see this morning is how firm commitment to the gospel leads to deep compassion for the poor. And I want us to see how they go together. This is so huge because there are all kinds of social justice causes that we hear about in the world today. And we see social justice sometimes trumpeted by the mainstream media, other times trumpeted by Hollywood, other times trumpeted by just a variety of different places. What I want us to see is that there is a care and concern and mercy for the poor that is distinctly gospel-driven, that the gospel in the hearts of Christians creates a concern and a compassion for the poor that is unique, that is different from anything else in the world, that there is a mercy that comes directly from God to his people in the gospel that plays itself out in the world that is totally different from any other social justice cause or concern or compassion that we might see in the world. And I want us to pray that God would give us that kind of distinctive mercy in our world today. And I want us to to look at a familiar passage of Scripture. I'm convinced one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture, but one of the most fundamentally misunderstood stories in all of Scripture, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are not as sensitive as first century hearers would have been when they heard the story. There are things that that should cause us to perk up, that maybe we don't perk up at because we don't realize the original context. I want us to make sure we get a grasp on this story. We're going to walk verse by verse through it, and then there will be some notes on the screen as we think about, okay, what does this heart of mercy look like in action, and how can we have the kind of mercy that Jesus is talking about here in the way we live today? In Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a couple of things here. Expert in the law, literally a lawyer, but not a lawyer like you or I would think of a lawyer today. We think of lawyers in terms of of civil or criminal law. In this context, government in Israel, this is a picture of an expert in the law of Moses and the Mosaic law and the Old Testament law and all of the rules and regulations have been added to that in, in Judaism. And the picture is, this is an expert who knows the law of God backwards and forwards. And he comes up to Jesus and asks him a question to test him. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that is a good question. I want us to realize I could only wish that every heart and mind and life in this room were consumed with that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
This is the question of all questions. There is no more important question for any one of us to answer in this room. The world would say there's all kinds of questions you need to answer and just inundates us with the temporal and the trivial. How am I going to advance my career? How is my team going to do? How am I going to take care of this or this or this? It's right in front of me. And the adversary would like nothing more than to get our minds focused on those questions and lose sight of the fact that every single one of us in this room is going to be around forever. You're going to be around forever. And each one of us will spend forever either in eternal life and joy or in everlasting suffering and death. And so there is no more important question for you to ask and answer in this room than what must I do to inherit eternal life. God, raise our eyes to see the gravity of this question. It's a really good question. And so Jesus responds, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answers a question with a question. Don't you hate it when somebody does that? And Jesus was a master at it. And he's doing it for a reason. He says, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? And the man replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, great commandment. And then, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting there from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we know that he's on the right track here because there's a couple of other points in the Gospels where Jesus has asked this same question and he gives the same answer. So, Jesus looks back at him and he says, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, some raise their eyebrows at this. Is Jesus saying that we can earn eternal life? Let's just hang for a minute and try to figure out exactly what Jesus is saying here. But he is saying, love God with everything you are, everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the path to eternal life. Do this and you will live. Verse 29 says, but he wanted to justify himself. Luke gives us a little commentary here. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So don't miss this. The man is wanting to determine, this expert in the law is wanting to determine who classifies as a neighbor so that he can make sure he is doing enough to inherit eternal life. We're going to pause the teaching right here. Do you want to stay current with all that's going on with David and the ministry of Radical? If you're on Twitter, you can find and follow us at Follow Radical. Keep up with the latest content from David and updates on his conference ministry. You can also interact with others who are putting into practice the radical teaching from God's Word. So join the conversation at Follow Radical or sample what's going on through our website at radicalwithdavidplatt.org. This is key. The man is asking this question, wants you to determine who is classified as a neighbor that he's supposed to love so that he can see if he measures up, so that he can see if he is doing enough to inherit eternal life. So that's his question that leads into this story. Verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. <coughs> 
when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, if you're listening to this, you know Jerusalem to Jericho, about 17 miles, pretty much downhill. Jerusalem, 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho, 1,000 feet below sea level. You drop 4,000 miles over 16 miles. This is a very steep, 4,000 feet over 17 miles. It's a very steep journey, and it's filled with all kinds of cracks and graves and crevices where people could hide out. It was known as the bloody way because it was very easy for someone to be hiding, a gang of robbers to be hiding in a cave and to to prey upon unsuspecting passerbys. And that's exactly what happens. He is attacked by this gang, this man, presumably a Jewish man, walking down the road, falls in the hands of robbers. They strip him of his clothes, beat him, and leave him half dead, literally hanging on to his life. There he is. No clothes, no possessions, wounded, beaten, and hanging, hanging on to his last breath. And then verse 31 says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Pause for a second. Yes, a priest happened. It's the same kind of literary tool that we saw in Ruth. You remember when Ruth just so happened to go into the field of Boaz and Boaz just so happened to come up and see Ruth at that time? It's Yes, of all things, it just so happens that a priest, a priest who knows that Leviticus teaches, the law teaches to care for a stranger who is in need. A priest who knows that Exodus 23 talks about even if your enemy has a donkey stuck in a ditch, you should help the donkey out of the ditch, much less the enemy, much more so the enemy if he is stuck in the ditch. So a priest who knows, yes, this is the responsibility of the law toward the people, care for the needy, and so Wonderful! A priest happened to come by. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Literally, he walked the opposite way. The word is, he, he, he saw him, he turned the opposite way and walked around him. That's a bit surprising. Verse 32 says, so to a Levite. A Levite was uh, basically a priest's assistant. The priest had responsibility for the primary sacrificial duties in the temple, and the, the Levite would care for, maintain the temple, and do a variety of other things. And so a Levite, who also knows what the priest knows, when he came by the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, same word, went the opposite way. And so there's some tension that is built. The drama begs the question, well, then who in the world is going to care for this man? And this is where Jesus just goes right for the jugular. And he says in verse 33, but a Samaritan. And as soon as we see that word come onto the scene, if we're hearing this in a first century Jewish mindset, our blood immediately begins to boil. Samaritans, the dreaded half-breeds, Hated for hundreds of years. Hated by the Jews. Deep division on every level. And so here's a man who has seen a priest 
come by and ignore him. A Levite come by and ignore him. And now a Samaritan whose heritage has taught him. The Samaritan's been taught not just to walk around the guy, but to step on the guy. And you can feel the sense of the expert in the law. A Samaritan, and Jesus says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. The half-breed hated one stops when the priest and the Levite did not. What did he do? He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. This is creating new wounds as the story is being told in this expert in the law's life. No, this is a Samaritan who's doing this. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan stops, Jesus said, and he went over to him. He saw the gravity of his wounds began to bandage them how the man had been had had everything stolen from him including his own clothes this means the samaritan is taking his own possessions his own clothing maybe some reserve he had maybe ripping his sleeve off and bandaging this man's wound with his own clothes pouring oil and wine on it to soothe it, to comfort the man, to prevent any further infection. The man is obviously not able to to get up. And so the Samaritan picks him up in his arms and lays him on his donkey where he now walks the man to an inn where he can be cared for. They get to the inn. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This is amazing. He foots the entire bill. He leaves the innkeeper with an open account. Whatever it takes, make sure this man is provided for. I will come back for him and care for him. When I get back, give him everything he needs. And at this point, the expert in the law is stunned into silence. And Jesus looks at him and says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now catch this. Jesus has totally reversed the question. He's changed the question completely. This expert in the law was trying to determine who would be classified as a neighbor so that he can know who he has to care for. Jesus turns the question on its head and says it's not about determining who your neighbor is. It's about defining what it means to be a neighbor. You see that? Major shift. Not about determining who a neighbor is, but defining what it means to be a neighbor who cares for those in need. And so Jesus asks this question, Listen to the reply. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The guy couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He didn't say the Samaritan had mercy. No, the one who had mercy on him. It's like he doesn't even want to admit it. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And in a short story, Jesus has just shattered the religious elite and shocked the religious teachers into realizing that there is a love that supersedes religious knowledge and religious position and religious status. There is a love that they have not even begun to realize. 
Now, what is the point of this story? There's a whole history of misinterpretation when it comes to this parable. Many have done with this parable what people do with a lot of different parables and taken every single detail and tried to make it stand for something different. This is a dangerous thing to do with parables because you, this is arbitrary. You can make anything fit whatever you want to. And so some have said, well, okay, in this story, uh, the man who is robbed is like a sinner who is, who is beaten down in his sin. And so the Samaritan is Jesus who comes to him. Now, the priest and the Levite, they represent the law and the sacrifices because they're not enough to save. Only Jesus can save. And so Jesus comes, saves, takes him to the inn. The inn is the church. This is a very popular interpretation of this passage. The inn is the church where believers are cared for. Some have even gone so far as to say the two silver coins represent baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments in the church to help care for the person and so on and so on. Now, this is not, this is, this is, Extremely arbitrary. It's not a responsible, wise way to interpret parables. But even if we don't go down that road, this story is so familiar to us that we automatically think, I've heard this before. This is a story about helping other people. When you see somebody in need, when somebody's hungry, you give them food. When somebody needs a ride, you give them a ride. When somebody's on the side of the road and needs help, you help them. That's the story. And what I want us to see this morning is this is not just a story about helping other people. This is not just a story about helping other people. There's something deeper here. There's something more profound at work. You say, well, how do you know? How do you know you're not just going to take it off somewhere that shouldn't go? Well, because this story is told in a context, and this story, the context in which it is told, begins with a question, and it's a question that even comes before, who is my neighbor? The ultimate question in this passage is what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that precipitates this discussion that leads to this story. And so we need to see this story not isolated from the context that precedes it, but in the context which precedes it. We need to realize this is not just a story about helping other people. This is a story about needing a new heart. We'll continue this message tomorrow titled Empowering the Poor when you join us for Radical with David Platt. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about the changes that are coming to Radical's ministry. Here's David to speak to us about this change coming at the end of this week. Hi, this is David Platt. For the past three years, it has been pure joy and privilege to present Radical with David Platt here on Moody Radio. It's long been my prayer since the very start of this partnership that these teachings and resources would serve you well as you seek to accomplish the Great Commission in your life. Now, three years since we began, Radical and I sense it's time to focus our energies in areas other than radio. Therefore, this daily broadcast of Radical with David Platt will end on Friday, March 31st. I hope that you'll continue to join me on this journey of living radically, not just once daily, but 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. By taking advantage of the thousands of free resources we have available on the Radical website, Radical.net. There you'll find resources for facing a changing world with the unchanging message of the gospel. I look forward to seeing you there on Radical.net. Well, we are so grateful for all of you who over the years have prayed for this outreach, contributed to keep it on the air, 
and have lived out the revolutionary message we've learned as we've studied together. Well, I'm Aaron Paulus. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our message titled Empowering the Poor. Radical with David Platt is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries.